All right. Good morning. So the disciples would say to each other, Boker Tov. Keep inserting some, some Hebrew lessons here and there. So take them or leave them. All right. So we're going to kind of cover a overview here this morning, um, which is going to kind of bring everything together here to uh, that we've been reading uh, throughout 1 John and then into this first passage in chapter 2. Uh, so as always, take heed of, of the inerrant, perfect infallible word of God as I read, and I'll read the entirety of this passage, the first passage here in chapter 2, starting from verse 1 through verse 6. And it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, not of ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word and in him, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us in the, in the truth of your word. Father, I pray this morning that, that your spirit continue to guide us here in this congregation and all your congregations throughout the world to exhort the truth, to receive the truth, and to walk in the light as you are in the light. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, context. Context, context, context. So important. All right, so when we're, we're reading this or or any passage of scripture, we need to make sure we keep it in its context. Right? And taking things out of context is, can be very detrimental. Um, it's how every false religion that, that claims Christianity starts from, is taking passages out of context, twisting and manipulating them to, to what man desires. Um, I give an example of, of a political Agendas, uh, you see it very much so. Political agendas. There's, there's people who spend their lives. It's it's their, their livelihood by taking words of other politicians, even they could be truthful words that they've actually said, and pulling them out of context, and then taking and twisting and manipulating them uh, for a certain agenda to to make someone else look bad or whatever it may be. And so we see that a lot in, in, in that realm of, of politics. Like, for example, if we're going down through 1 John here and we read things like verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say we have fellowship with him while walking in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I'm writing these things so that you know. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Verse one of, of chapter two. So we just take those. All of those verses that I just read are true. Each one of those are true. If you take those four and just pull them out of its context. And just utilize those and those alone. Someone can twist and manipulate into a, a religion of perfectionism or moralism. Where you're saying you must be, be perfect. You must not ever sin. And that's how you obtain salvation, righteousness. So it's very important. Even though those verses are, are true. True as can be. We must always keep them in its context. Um, <coughs> So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do an overview here and look at the, the context of this passage, remind ourselves of the context of this passage um, and, and how John here, being guided by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's very clever, right? And he's, he's all-knowing, all-powerful God. So therefore, obviously, he's very clever in the way in which he goes in and out of these exhortations of, of walking in righteousness and holiness but also reminding us that we are fallible. We, we can fall. We can uh, 
sin as Christians. And so therefore, what happens? That's a scary thing, right? If, 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 if there's no hope, right? So the Holy Spirit here using John uh, kind of brings us back, back and forth and reminds us of, of our hope, our assurance, our salvation. It was in God and God alone. So um, John here in first, the first chapter, well, first I'll, I'll start off and, and, and remind us here of uh, chapter two where we're at in this passage that we're, we're going to be hitting on this morning. Where he says, I'm, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things. Remember John speaking, John being elderly by this time, but here's, here's the reality. It doesn't matter where someone is in the sense of the greatest theologians in, in history, right? the smartest and most you know, wisest man to ever live in, in that of Solomon or, or thinking of theologians like Calvin or Zwingli or, or Spurgeon. It, it doesn't matter. Before God, they are all little children. We are all little children. And because the vastness, the vastness in, in the all-knowing attribute of God uh, man, for us in our finite minds to stand before the infinite, all-knowing God is like it's like a guppy trying to learn quantum mechanics. Right? I say that that's not a good illustration. He reveals himself as much as he wants us to know of himself, which is sufficient and enough. And so. But the, the variance between our knowledge versus the all-knowing God is, is just it's unmeasurable. Um, and so here he starts off, and John lays this, this foundation of where he's saying, he says, I, I'm writing these things, all the things in which he said prior, chapter 1. I'm writing these things. He starts off uh, the very first passage in chapter 1 of just laying this foundation of who it is he's speaking about. He's not speaking, uh, I mean, he addresses man in, this, in his letter, but the main subject is God, God himself. It's the main subject of his letters. So here he, he, he lays the foundation, the, uh, the plumb line, essentially, here, which says is, he speaks about the one concerning the word of life, the, the eternal life in which he proclaimed, which has been made manifest to us. Christ Jesus, he is the, the rock, the salvation, the plumb line in which everything stems from. So if he is our rock, he is our foundation, he makes the crooked stick straight. It's a plumb line. If you're thinking in a sense of carpentry, it's the very first board that you set, perfectly straight, perfect, right? and everything off of that, then therefore will be made straight. If the plumb line was, was crooked, then everything that proceeds is crooked. But he is light, perfect, no darkness in him. He is our plumb line. So he sets that foundation there. Starts off, it's Christ, Christ alone here. And he says in verse 5, Again, re-articulates. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. Again, we're articulating the perfection, the perfect one who is Christ. There's no spot, no blemish. Goes on to say, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we'll walking in the darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. So we have this exhortation here, this first exhortation of 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 mortifying the sin in our lives. And these warnings, these tests that, that John gives us to examine ourselves, to what it means, what it looks like to be a Christian. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there he, he reminds us, he brings our minds back. It is he is Christ who cleanses us from our sins. Right? It's not our, our works that may even look and appear to be as if walking in the light. No, it's solely Christ and his, his washing through his sacrifice on the cross. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So again, he goes back to this warning. 
It doesn't leave us there. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say if we're not sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, specifically here, he's saying if we confess our sins, he is faithful. This is verse 9 of, of, of chapter 1. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's a... An issue that may go through, uh, gone through many people's minds in, in, in trying to resolve, and, and that is, how can a just God forgive sins? How can a just God forgive sins? If he is just, and if we're in a courtroom setting, and we have a, a, a judge, just kind of putting this in, in, in human terms, we have a, a human judge that is just, has a reputation of and issuing out the punishment which is deserved and not corrupt, not being able to be swayed by politicians or any, any sort of corruptness. If he is just, and we, we commit a crime, we'll say a speeding ticket, and we go before him, if he's just, what is he going to do? Is he going to look at our, our resume and say, Oh, well, you, you, you helped that cat out of a tree last week, or you, you, you helped your family member with something in their household, or whatever it may be. So therefore, that stuff's gone. The, the punishment, we can just forgive that punishment. That's not what he's going to say. If he's just, if he's just, he's going to dish out the due punishment for that crime. right? And so... <clears throat> we see this issue here with us, with, with the sin that has to be paid for. If he's just God, the sin must be paid for. So therefore, the only way in which we can answer the question is, how can a just God forgive sin, is if God himself is both the just and the justifier. And so we see here, and that's what, what John is articulating to us, that there has to be a, a perfect, without spot, without blemish, one to stand in our place, to take the punishment in which we owe and we deserve. And so therefore, we see here in our advocate, our great advocate in Christ Jesus. And so, he says here in verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. I mean, imagine that if, if, if that's just where John stopped. If John paused right there and just kind of left us in that moment. It's kind of going back to the keeping everything in context here. I mean, it'd be a scary situation. It could perplex or, or baffle us or in, in looking at, like, how can I do this, right? The reader would, would, would be left in thinking, and then this task is so hard, it's, it's, it's impossible to obtain. To, to, to not sin. It is impossible to obtain. There, John, he, he gives us the reminder. The reminder, the hope, the peace, our refuge, our assurance... He goes on to say, we have the advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. He is righteous because he is righteous and he made his people righteous through his atonement on the cross. And so, and he doesn't leave us there. And so thankfully he does. It's the same thing as Paul, how Paul articulates it to the Romans. He says here in Romans 8, verse 34, he says, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So we have this great advocate. It's one who is interceding for us in heaven. To Timothy, he says, for, though, for there is one God, one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. That is Christ Jesus. He says to the Hebrews, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Who's him? The advocate, Christ. 
right, through him, since he always, says he always lives. He always lives. The Alpha, the Omega. Right? No beginning, no end. He always lives to make intercession for them. Right? That is great joy for us to be able to read this and to know that it is finished. It is finished on the cross and Christ is our advocate, our intercessory, and, and, and he stands in heaven seated at the right hand of God and, and, and intercedes for us. And, and that's, that's our great hope. I hope that it's without uncertainty. So here, John, in a way, he's, he's kind of trying to bring our minds to ask ourselves this question. Am I good enough? Question, am I good enough? How we answer that question is vital to the Christian life. Am I good enough? And here's that we, we, can, we can fall into a rut that, that many Christians find themselves in, in times of their life. Even walking as Christians, we can fall into this rut of, of this moralism or perfectionism that we're trying to, to seek and find our, our assurance and salvation based on what my life is, what my life looks like. To where then we start uh, mirroring ourselves to ourselves in that of, am I, am I doing these things enough? Am I, am I holy enough? Am I righteous enough? Do I share the gospel enough? Am I repentant enough? Do I treasure Christ enough? Am I enough? And if we fall into that realm of thinking in order to, to find assurance and salvation, well, here's the thing, that the question, the answer to that question, am I enough, is, is always and will always be an astounding no. An astounding no. But our hope is that Christ, we know that Christ is enough. He is enough. He is the righteous one. He's the, spot, the, the lamb that, that is spotless and, and without blemish. As the, the hymn, Christ is enough says, or Christ is sufficient, I'm sorry, says, nothing I've done could merit God's grace. Nothing I'll do can take it away. I have one hope in life and death, and I have been clothed in Christ. Righteousness. To understand what that means. To be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And think about that. On, on that cross, the perfect one, the, the righteous one, the advocate, Christ Jesus, the righteous. On that cross, the, the, the wrath of God being poured out on the only one the only one whom did not deserve that wrath and that punishment. Christ taking the sins upon himself, his righteousness then therefore covering, now covering you. His righteousness is now, now clothes you. So then when, when the God the Father looks upon you, he does not see he does not see your sins no more. He sees the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. And so now, think about how awesome this is now being, being children of God. The Father, right? Because sometimes we get this skewed here a little bit where, where we have like this, the three parts of, of, of the Trinity and you have the Father who, who is just this, this wrathful being that wants to just dish out wrath upon us. No. And that Christ and the Holy Spirit are the only loving ones within the Trinity. And they're just holding back God's wrath upon you. No. Because remember, remember John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Holy Spirit displayed in the atonement of Christ. And think about just for a second here. Think about 
the most egregious sin you can possibly think of. I know we don't like to kind of think, put those things in our minds, but, but just think about what the most egregious sin that somebody could do to another person or, or, or to yourself. Just think about that there's probably, there's somebody who has committed that sin, yet Christ died for that sin on the cross. You may be even thinking like, oh, that person, or they committed that sin that I have thought in my mind, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to, to, to see the, the righteousness of Christ. They don't deserve salvation. None of us do. If we did, we wouldn't need a savior. All fall short of God's glorious standard. Right? So think about the, the, the God, the Father, sacrificing his own son and said he pleased him. It pleased him to crush him. It pleased him to see the, the willingness of his own son. Because remember, this is the, 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 through his, the counsel of his will, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, are all on the same page here. They're all three God and one. Sacrificing his own son. About somebody you love the most, and sacrificing them for that egregious sin that you thought of. Man, what a display of love by our God in heaven. So, because Christ is righteous, because of Him, what we know, the truth of Him sacrificing himself for the, for the sins of his people. And there's a great call, a great call here to, to stop clinging to self and to stop clinging to the things of the world. Cling only to the one, the righteous one, our salvation, our rock, our refuge, Christ Jesus. Again, being that his righteousness covers us so Wonderful, so beautiful. And knowing that now the, the, the wrath has been poured out, the punishment has, has been paid. So now, God the Father, what is left? What is, what is the only thing that is left? The punishment has been paid. So what is left? Only His love. His love. God loves you. He looks at you and sees His Son. What a great joy in that. Think about this, like your righteousness right now, your status of righteousness right now at this very moment is the exact same as it will be throughout all of eternity. Exactly the same. Now, when we enter into to heaven or the new, new heavens and new earth, we receive our new glorified bodies and be fully sanctified, you will be changed. We will be changed. But your status of righteousness will remain the same. Because he's been, it's the lamb who's been slain for the foundation of the world. Your status will remain the same. Because it's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that clothes you. Verse 2 here in chapter 2. says, He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Every nation, every tongue, people from all over the world. That word propitiation, it's important that we understand that word. The Greek word, is, it's, it's a strong word, halosmos. Halosmos in the Greek. And, and what it is, is a, it's a legal term. So kind of bring our minds back to that courtroom. It's a legal term right, that is the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something. It's the propitiation of, of, of God, propitiation of Christ. It's brought his people back unto himself and, and has broken down that, that, that wall of hostility that has... Uh, torn the veil, and so there was an entrance into the Holy of Holies, 
And when sin entered the world back with Adam and Eve, then there was a dividing wall. In Christ, he breaks down that barrier. He's our propitiation for our sins. He regains that favor from the Father. It's interesting, too, that, that in that Greek word, halosmos, the, the root word to that Greek word is ilios. That word means graceful and merciful. Our graceful and merciful God. What, again, what an act of grace and mercy upon an undeserving people. There's no greater than to give your life for a brother. Christ giving his life for his people. That act of atonement. Turn with me to, to 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21. Look here, the very first two words. For our. For our sake. Who is our? Who is that? It's people, right? For our sake. Right? He, who's he? The Father. Made him. Who is him? The Son. Right? For our sake, the Father made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Again, this is bringing that back into, into our minds, that, that, that Christ's atonement covering us, his righteousness, not of our own. It's important, too, sometimes this, uh, there's people that, that misinterpret this verse. Jesus did not become corrupt. He did not become defiled on that cross. He remained the spotless Lamb of God. Our sins were imputed into him. He was legally declared the guilty one. Legally declared the guilty one. Stepped in our place. He was treated as being guilty. He's treated as such. All the wrath of God poured out upon him as the guilty one. Not only through faith in him. Faith, actually, faith in Christ equaling to be legally declared righteous before God. A great assurance. This is man's only hope for a Christian. And this is a hope that is without uncertainty. That it's more certain than our next breath. That his righteousness, his act of atonement, covers and, and, and clothes his people. So it's important then when we when we read or we articulate to one another, you hear me articulate it quite a bit, the, the, the scriptures, the, the passages that say that, that he's taken our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the, from the west, that, that he takes our sins and tramples them underfoot. He takes our sins and plummets them to the depths of the sea. So important when we hear those, those, those passages and read those, we must not get caught up in the illustration of those uh, those passages, but rather to not ever forget the, the, the point in which those passages illustrate. So not the illustration themselves, but what does that illustrate? Our sins were not simply cast as far as the east from the west. They weren't simply trampled underfoot. They weren't simply plummeted to the depths of the sea. No. No, they were poured out upon the sun. They were poured out upon the Son, Christ Jesus, the righteous. So then, therefore, they are cast as far as the east is from the west. They're trampled underfoot. 
but only through Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Verse 3, he says, back in 1 John. <clears throat> and it moves into this test. I kind of started talking about it last week uh, as we hit verses 3 and 4 last week. John moves into this test here. Again, this test is not of sinless perfectionism. This cannot be obtained. And so, it says, by this we know that we have come to know him. That's that's so beautiful. He's saying to us that that we can know that we know God. And so, it says, we know this, that we've come to know him. It says, if we keep his commandments. So again, this isn't a test of perfectionism. Not at all. It's a test of one's posture towards the righteous one. One's posture towards sin. No, no. Somebody says like they, they, they have come to know Christ. And that they have a relationship now with Christ. That's a joyful thing for somebody to say that. But perhaps a... a, a Responding question is, well, how now, how is your relationship towards sin? How's not your relationship towards sin? What John is saying is, one who has had an encounter with the Holy One of Israel, the Righteous One, our Advocate, our Redeemer, our Propitiator, the Son, with the sovereign God. He's saying you will be changed. You will be changed. That person will, will no longer be the same as Paul says in the Corinthians, the old is gone and the new is alive. A completely different creature. No longer slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness, a slave to Christ. He says in verse 3, again, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's important to, to understand that. That's not a, it's a statement other than a conditional statement. It's just a statement. But it's in perspective of like ontology, which is the study of, of nature. You know, some people here are very, the Andersons can probably pick out every type of stone or leaf. Um, and, and many of us uh, are, enjoy the outdoors, but they're, they're weird. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but here's like, so, <laughs> so we, have, we have these five trees out back here. Okay, these, these little trees are along the, the fence line that we planted a few years ago. We have these trees out there, and, and some of you may even know what type of tree they are, um, trees they are. But if I were to go out and, and take, they got these little spikes on them, or a piece of the bark, and bring it in here and kind of walk around and say, what tree is this? Most of us, without our, if, unless we already knew, probably would not know what type of tree that is. Unless you're an interesting. Or even as far as taking a branch in right now, especially at the, the, the tail end of winter, and bringing the branch in here and saying, what type of tree is this? We're all going to be like, oh, it's a stick. No clue. But yet, summertime, when they're in full bloom, bearing the fruit in which they bear, and I bring it in here, everybody's going to know they're plum trees. Everybody. Here's the thing, you must understand. Those trees are not plum trees because they produce plums. It's not why. Not at all. They produce plums because it's a plum tree. 
Same it is with the Christian. Our our works following the commands of God does not make you a Christian. You're a Christian, and because you're a Christian, you produce fruit. You follow his commands. You're new. You're alive in Christ. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, this posture towards sin, posture towards obedience in Christ. Uh, Colin Cruz, he says it this way. He says, people can have no authentic relationship with God if they do not obey his commands. This does not mean, of course, that those who know God will never fail to obey God's commands, but rather that those who know God will not be characterized by disobedience to his commands. Now again, none of us are perfect, not even close. Um, But if you ever seen somebody who professes Christianity but bears no fruit, who blasphemes God's name constantly, follows the course of the world, lives in debauchery, and lavishes in it. Again, us as Christians can sin. We should not enjoy sin. This is called to obedience and can only be found through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only found through the atoning work of Christ. John here, he, he, he's stating that obedience illustrates a, a mature love for God. And again, all stemming from the, the workings of the Holy Spirit, the power of, of the atoning work of Christ. Verse 5. It says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. No, Harry, again, this is not, it's not another condition. This isn't a conditional sentence. This one here as well is, is a statement. It's a statement. The verb tense <laughs> is very important here to, to take note of this, these verb tenses here. Verb tense, uh, the word keeps there. Whoever keeps his word. Remember, John uses this synonymously with verse 3 of whoever keeps his commandments. Whoever keeps his word, his word, his commandments, they're the same. Whoever keeps, that word keeps there is, is in the present tense. It's indicating this obedience that is, that is ongoing. It's an ongoing obedience. So when we look at our lives, right, this test that John is giving us, right, and kind of like, so picture it this way. Say you map quest going from here to like Washington, okay, and on your phone or computer or whatever, and you kind of, it kind of zooms it out and you see the, the, the trajectory, right, uh, the path to Washington, it's going to be on an a, a upward trajectory, right? So as a Christian, our lives should be a, a thrust forward in obedience in, in Christ. And so, again, it's not ever going to look perfect, right? Because then when we zoom in closer to that, that illustration of that map quest there, we zoom in closer and we see, like, there are times and where we're going to go down and over, back up, down. It's going to be these times of, of, of sin, in our lives. We're not perfect. Okay, but what John is articulating here is that, that upward 
trajectory towards obedience to, to, to Christ as we, as we know him, as we learn to know him more and more. The more and more we know of his character that, that continues to, to thrust forward. The verb, the next verb I want us to, to, to highlight here, says he keeps, present tense, And he says, in him truly the love of God is perfected, is perfected. To teleotize, the Greek word, is perfected. That word there is, is, is in the perfect tense, which means is that it is depicting those who obey God's word as people in whom God's love is perfected. Right? And, and, and what's really imperative about this is, is in the Greek, what it is is in the passive voice. Right? And because it's in the passive voice, what that means is it expresses the fact that it is God and God alone, not us, who perfects our love. We're the passive ones. The, the, the object is God. He perfects our love. Paul reminds us in Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our trespasses. This morning, if you do not know Christ this morning, say that we are, we are dead in our trespasses. A spiritual corpse, a spiritual zombie, following the desire of the flesh. That's what we once were, following the course of the world. But Paul to the Ephesians, he doesn't leave us there. He tells us, by grace you have been saved. By grace. The propitiation, the the, the, root word, that Greek, Elios, the graceful and merciful God. His graceful and merciful act, you have been saved. Not of your own doing, but a gift of God, he says to the Ephesians. A gift. The Greek word there for gift is Dorian, which means a gift that is unmerited, undeserved. And he imputes that to his people, displaying his grace and his mercy. And the perfect love of God displayed through that sacrifice of his son purchasing and redeeming his people unto himself. And through that act of love, his, his people who were spiritually dead, following the course of the world, are made alive. Alive. And awakening them from, from their stupor and no longer a, a dead, withered tree. a dead withered tree but one that has been watered by the living water hydrated by the ever flowing living water and now recognizable by its fruit again made alive so now this new creature because it's been made alive Therefore, produces fruit. The producing of the fruit does not make the one alive. Made alive, created in, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John says in verse 6, in 1 John, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Sounds pretty tough. To walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, if we were to pull that verse out of context, we'd all be, we wouldn't find assurance in that. 
there's no way we could walk in the same way in which Christ walked. Again, so talking about this, this posture for us, this posture towards sin, towards Christ. It's not perfectionism. But walking in the light as he is in the light. Desiring the things that, that, that God desires. Hating the things in which he hates. John, he, he's a big fan of, of the word abide there. Um, I didn't solidify this. I think I talked about this in the very first day we started, First John. I still have a little note here in my Bible. That, uh, question mark by it, so it's not for sure. But 19 times I counted that he uses the word abide. 19 times. Or more. And where does he, where does he get that? Why does he use that word to, to articulate to the churches in Asia Minor who are under this infiltration of Gnostic teaching, which I mean, we live in that same time right now of this docetic Gnosticism where it's you know, just live, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, Christ died for your sins, do whatever you want. what John was combating here in the first century. Same thing that, that we combat today. Let's look at, real quick, where did John get this? Why is John so excited about using the word abide? He loves to use it. So John, you can turn there if you, if you would like. If not, I'll be reading it to you anyway. But John 15 very quickly here. John 15, verse, verse 4. So I can only assume and make a good assumption that, that John is writing this and remembering, and the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind into his remembrance this moment. This moment here where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says here in verse 4 of, of 15, he says, Abide in me and I in you. Hopefully this will all kind of come together on some of the things in which we were talking about already this morning. Because as the branch, as the branch, the withered branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It cannot. Unless it abides in the vine living water. Abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Excuse me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Right? He doesn't say that you bear a bunch of fruit and then I'm going to abide in you. No. Those who abide in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Going back to Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses. It says that everyone, anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. This is an extra, this is a warning here. To, to, to take heed of, of the inherent word of God here. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's important too. That'll, that's one the charismatics take out of context quite a bit. Okay? And so I just wasn't planning on hitting on this, but I want us to make sure we understand that verse. If his word abides in us, what would our desires be? His desires, right? Our, our desires should be his desires. If, he, if his word abides in us. And so it's not saying that if I desire a, a Porsche, I'm, I'm, I should get a Porsche. No. If you abide in me, the word abides in you. Whatever you, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. Stop right there. By this, my Father is glorified. I'll finish it up. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So proving to be the disciples, what, what does he say here? By this, my Father is glorified. 
Solo Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Right? What's the, what's the third, third question in the Boys and Girls Catechism? Why did God make you in all things? Nobody? For his glory, right? All things for his glory. All things. Was it the third? Was I wrong? I was always calling me out from the front here. All right. For his glory. Right? So think about that. God created all things. He created us for his glory. So he is going to get the glory. He is going to get the glory. So therefore, the, the withered branches that have been made alive through the, the living water are going to bear fruit because those fruits bring glory to who? beforehand, since the foundation of the world will bring glory unto himself. And what great joy in that. By this the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And he says, this thing I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Right? The fullness and the, and the joy that can only come from faith and faith alone in Christ. And right? a great joy knowing that, that and he is our, our advocate. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And one day he's going to gather his people unto himself. A day in which there will no longer be any, any tears, any sorrow, any mourning. That's as sure as our next breath. More sure than our next breath. One is promised, the other is not. There's no greater joy than, bear with me when I say this for a second. There's no greater joy than understanding that we fall short of his glorious standard, but, but yet, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Great joy in knowing that, that he is sufficient and we are not. Turn with me lastly to, to Hebrews chapter 12 as we... Enter into communion. I want this, this verse is to be resonating in our thoughts and in our hearts. Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to listen to this as if, I'll just go ahead and say it, as if Paul is speaking directly to you, right? Actually, better, as if God is speaking directly to you because he is. It's the very breath of God. Okay, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, look around you. Look around you today. I see this cloud of witnesses. This cloud of witnesses in, in God's general revelation. We see his handiwork. We know he's there. Paul says to the Romans, there'll be nobody will have an excuse because we all see his handiwork. The work of the Holy Spirit and believers Taking people who are following the course of the world and, and making them alive in Christ. Maybe it's your family members, other people within the church, people outside of this church in your circle of, of believers. You see the works of Christ. You see the works of, of, of the Holy Spirit. You see the works of the Father. You see the works of God. And therefore, this great cloud of witnesses that surround us. Do not, you know, 
dull your senses to that. So he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Why? Why are we to do that? Why are we to then, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why cast those things aside? Because Christ paid for those sins. He paid for those sins. They're poured out upon him. So he says, lay him aside, turn from them. Every weight, the sin which clings so closely, run the race of endurance set before you. Looking where? To Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy, for the joy or his joy, becomes our joy. For the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Okay, how could he say that? How could he say that Christ did this in, in the, 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 for the joy? It was joyful for him. Let's go back to that third question in the Boys and Girls Catechism. It's for his glory. It's for his glory. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, our advocate. Christ Jesus, the righteous. Here's the last thing I want us to be bringing into our ears. Verse 3, as we enter communion, consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that who? So that you, you and I, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our rest is only found in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you provided the rest. You've provided the sacrificial lamb. Thank you for the shed blood of your son Jesus. His atoning work upon the cross. Raising him from the dead, showing his power over sin and death. So that we can cling to the promise. The promise that is sure as tomorrow, surer than, than tomorrow. And one day he'll raise us, that you will raise us through the power of the work of your son. And there's that great inheritance that awaits. Father, help us to keep our eyes set to that, set to eternal things and in our actions and our thoughts. Let us be reminded of the borrowed breath that is not promised tomorrow. Let us live each day and if your son's going to return today. Help us see through the fog of, of the world. And let us cling so closely to your son Jesus each and every day. Father, I pray as we enter into communion that our hearts are in the posture of repentance. Our hearts are in the posture of, of obedience towards your son, and obedience towards his commands. And our posture is away from sin. Striving to be in the likeness of him, walking in the light as he is in the light. Father, bless these elements, set them aside for a holy use. Let us partake in them as if we were sitting at that last supper. 
As we're sitting there next to the disciples, and more so that we're sitting there in the presence of Christ, as He is ordaining His Last Supper and ordaining this communion that we're about to partake in, let's be reminded of that moment. Let our minds go to that place around that table. Father, we eagerly await the return of your Son. Help us each and every day. We need grace. We need your Holy Spirit. Father, remind us always that we are weak and that we are to constantly rely upon the power of you, our only hope. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.